You've heard of high net worth, but we're talking about high net purpose. We want to find out how entrepreneurs and global leaders in our network are allocating financial, human, and intellectual capital in pursuit of purpose. But more importantly, we want to understand the compromises, the paradoxes in their approaches, pitch decks, and philosophies. For the first episode of High Net Purpose, we are privileged to have the awe-inspiring Mark Pollock. Mark, unbroken by blindness in 1998, became an adventure athlete competing in ultra-endurance races across deserts, mountains, and been the first blind person to race to the South Pole. In 2010, a fall from a second-story window nearly killed him. Mark broke his back, and the damage to his spinal cord left him paralyzed. Now he's on a new expedition, this time to cure paralysis in our lifetime by exploring the intersection where humans and technology collide. I expect you'll find this an absolutely inspiring talk where Mark takes us through a number of the concepts and ideas, some of which were included in his hit TED talk, A Love Letter to Realism in a Time of Grief, which received over 2 million views and has inspired millions. He'll start by telling us how he's managed to articulate his purpose in his life. He'll also talk about the importance of leaning into reality, the acceptance, finding a way through what we can and can't control, and how he reaches states of flow in his work and personal life. Without further ado, the first edition of A High Net Purpose. We really hope you enjoy it. Good morning, Mark. Welcome to the very first episode of the High Net Purpose podcast. I wanted to jump straight in and ask you, have you managed to articulate your purpose? And if so, what is it? Well, I'll go straight, straight in as well. It's everything I do is about helping people build resilience and collaborate with others so they achieve more than they thought possible. And I've got to that why statement um, which is the same as the purpose, uh, but it, it, it leans on Simon Sinek's thinking around finding our why and starting with why. And it doesn't mention anything about the specifics of the things that I do. So everything I do is about helping people build resilience and collaborate with others so they achieve more than they thought possible. It has a resilience pillar, a collaboration pillar, and a performance pillar. And all of the projects that I've done, uh, the challenges that I've chosen, like racing to the South Pole or now bringing people together to cure paralysis, those are the challenges that I've, ch that I've chosen. And the challenges that have chosen me are uh, suddenly losing my sight age 22 and then falling out a window and breaking my back uh, age 34. Regardless of the detail, um, I think it's important or it feels important and it feels liberating to elevate your why or your purpose way beyond the specifics of the projects that you're doing. And uh, when I did that, when I spoke to Simon Sinek to to kind of release me from the specifics of, of what I was doing around curing paralysis, uh, it just freed me up to pick the projects that fitted and say no to the projects that, that didn't fit. And on a day-to-day -day basis, does that pursuit of purpose, as you've described it, is that what's front of mind? Or is it one day at a time, and then you sit back and you review what that bigger purpose is, and are you following it? It's a bit of a yes and 
yes, it's day to day, it's week to week, it's quarter to quarter, it's year to year. Uh, it's, uh, in my case, four years to four years on my business cycle, I like an Olympic Olympic cycle because I never went to the Olympics. But I, I, I think of this in a, a kind of clarity stack. So you start with, start with why, then you come down to the specifics of the businesses that you're involved in. I, I then come down to the annual key result areas. What are the four or five things that if I look back at the end of the year, I'm going to be happy that I've achieved those. And we do that with our, uh, with our team as well. Then I come down to quarterly clear goals. And then I come down to weekly priorities. And we have a a system called 15-5 so the whole team put their priority list for the week into it and then and then we get down into how we design our calendars on a daily basis to allow for flow blocks or deep work or creative work and then all the messy stuff and the recovery and the rest that's required in, in finding that purpose and linking into what you say about sometimes we choose our challenge sometimes our challenge chooses us what is your feel on that purpose? Does, does it? Do you think that people um, arrive at it in this, you know, very methodical way to getting to it, or it's it it is based on where we've come from, or our circumstance, or something else? I think there's a there's a danger that um, purpose is very closely linked to passion and the idea that you know you've you've got to be. You've got to be absolutely up up for it every day. As soon as you wake, open your eyes in the morning, you've got to be jumping out of bed, really going for you and driven. And it's got to be lofty and, you know, changing the world the whole time. My feeling is that that isn't the way it works. You you do have to be going, you know, you do have to give yourself something, something to go for. But I kind of feel, I, I mean, I'm, I, I maybe start with a sort of more miserable perspective on, on things. You, you, my assumption is that uh, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. We're not going to enjoy things all the time. The, the end goal is going to seem very, very far away. Often it's going to seem like it's it's completely unattainable. So I, I start with the assumption that we're going to have to confront the brutal facts like Admiral Stockdale spoke about in, uh, in the aftermath of it. Uh, his time in uh, as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. We're going to have to confront the brutal facts. Uh, in my case, that means I'm going to have to acknowledge that I'm blind and I'm paralysed. Um, but to confront the brutal facts, it's actually a little bit... It's, it's, it's hard to go beyond the problems and look at the, the full picture, the good, the bad and the ugly, so I can use my arms. I'm surrounded by great people. There are endless opportunities around. So start with facts. Mm-hmm. I look at what I can and can't control, that kind of filter to rule things in and out, and then extend timelines towards a better a better future, fueled by hope, fueled by purpose, fueled by my my why. So I'm I'm going to running this um, this cycle, not and, and look, they're probably inter interlinked. So it is a it, it yeah. is it is a circle. It's the why. And the purpose and the hope, but very quickly going to the brutal facts, and then working out what I can and can't control. Facts anchoring and hope. Facts anchoring and hope. Cycling around and around. But, but, I'm, I'm very, I very much come from the from the from the perspective that it's, 
it's going to be difficult. It's going to take work. It's going to take much, much longer than we expected. But if it matters, it's if it's worth going for, then uh, then all that all that hardship fades away. I love it. The finite and infinite games. We, we've used that framework in conversation with our uh, our families and uh, the strategic intent of, uh, of of wealth. How do you think about finite and infinite games, and and, and maybe help our audience to try and understand that concept and how it can apply to uh, what they're doing, say around their purpose? Yeah, it's. Uh... I mean, at a very at a very basic level, it's it's about raising our ambition high enough so that everyone can everyone can win. And this this was the it was about two thousand and nineteen. I I listened to a, a book, an audio book by Chris Voss. Chris Voss was the uh, lead hostage negotiator for the FBI outside. The U.S. I think you. I think you have read that the book um, never, split, never, split, the never split the difference, right? Yeah. The reason he calls it never split the difference is he says you can't you can't say to a bank robber who's got four hostages, you know, hey, give me two of those hostages and you keep the other two. We'll just split the difference. You can't do that. You have to get all four hostages out. That's the win for the hostage negotiator, and for the hostage taker. Well, they don't want to keep. The four hostages. They, they've, they're looking for something else, which is to be recognised, understood, listened to, acknowledged for whatever has gone on in their lives. So, but what Chris Voss sort of talks about is moving from a competitive game where where the hostage taker is an opponent. How do how do they raise the game so that everyone can get what they need? And I think it, it struck me when I was moving from that kind of one-on-one competition, finite game mentality, you have to raise the ambition to, yeah. the, to the infinite game, which ultimately becomes a collaboration, but leaving enough room for everyone to win. Hostage negotiation, from what Chris Voss says, doesn't work when it's a competition, but it doesn't need to be because you're playing the wrong game if it's a competition. And finite games being games where we... We know the rules. We we um uh the, they they've been set out. You you understand what winning is, um and it's clear. And there's a, a end period for it. Versus an infinite game where you the rules can change, the players can change, the time periods can can change. And I think I think the the what I think of is you can you can win or lose in a finite game, a football match, but you can't win or lose sport as an idea. Yeah. Yeah, uh, business. You can win or lose a deal, but you can't. You can't. You, you can't win or lose commerce or business as a as a kind of a concept. It's going to be there all the time. Hopefully, in the pursuit of your purpose, it's all, it's not often a, a straight line, and there's going to be periods where you're seriously tested. How do you maintain the resilience? I think sometimes it gets mixed up a little bit with being stoic small s stoic which is the stiff upper lip keep going no emotions uh stop don't be moaning about it no whinging as opposed to uh, capital s stoicism which is the ancient stoic philosophy uh, around two thousand two and a half thousand years ago with marcus aurelius and seneca and um uh epictetus who influenced admiral stockdale uh, and met and many others so 
that through that lens, that is a lens where we do push through, but with our humanity intact as well. And it's kind of led on, it's, it's, it's sort of led on and overlaps with my interest in not just resilience, but performance and collaboration. And when it comes to per- performance, because uh, flow, some of the research into flow, an optimal state of consciousness where you perform at your best and you feel your best. But, you know, that's the definition of it. But it's just when we're in the zone, when everything feels easy, whenever time stands still or speeds up, we come up with answers that we didn't even know we had. It's you get it in sport. You, if you're a musician, uh, if anyone's ever done a drum circle, you, you, you know, you get it there. People who can play instruments get it there, but you get it in work. You get it uh, in everything you do. You get it when you're socializing. You just, it's a, it's a happy place, but your performance is five times better than when you're struggling through small s stoicism, uh, you know, sto- small s stoic. And the underlying explanation for this is the neuroscience of of performance. There is a struggle phase. There is a struggle phase where it's where it is difficult, and adrenaline, cortisol, norepinephrine are going through our systems, and you just have to do that. That's the foundation. the tr- The tricky part is that lots of you know, I was going to go to London and work in a in an an investment bank, as you as you know, and I and I feel like lots and lots of people that I know working in banks and law firms and accountancy firms, they were just driven and driven and consulting firms, driven and driven and driven, and they stay in the struggle phase, lots of cortisol, lots of adrenaline, lots of struggle, but that's it's necessary as a platform. But it, it, you needn't stay there. And to get to optimal performance or flow, where you're performing 5x better than when you're in struggle, you need to consciously uh, take rest and recovery as high-performance non-negotiables. So whenever you take the 5-minute break or the 10-minute break regularly throughout the day that everyone says you should do and no one does, um, it, it changed for me whenever I started to understand that the reason you do that is so that nitric oxide floods the system, pushes out the stress hormones and gives you a chance, not a guarantee, a chance to get into flow where dopamine and uh, endorphins and anandamide and norepinephrine, serotonin and oxytocin, if you're with other people, are running through the system. You're performing brilliantly, but you can't get there if you're filled with cortisol and adrenaline. So short nitric oxide rest breaks are important throughout the day regularly as is designing your calendar for uninterrupted blocks of flow and then the messy stuff as is the other thing the recovery and recovery again like taking holidays just i mean maybe it's changed after after lockdowns but taking holidays seems to be for lots of people uh, a weakness or something a crack in their armor but it's because if they're very high performers and if they have ever got into flow, which everyone does, when you drop out of it, because it's neurologically expensive, when you drop out of flow, you feel tired, mm-hmm. you feel useless, you feel self-conscious, you feel vulnerable, and you feel like you're never going to be able to do anything again. So lots of people just skip recovery 
weekends and holidays and things, go back into the struggle phase and just start again and grind it out, grind it out, mistaking the idea that Angela Duckworth's grit requires you to work 24 hours a day with no breaks. That's that's uh, that's not the case. Her definition of grit is uh, uh, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. But nowhere does she say, and forget about rest and recovery. Yeah. And, uh, you know, thankfully, there is a lot more focus on, on recovery. Um, but the point that you raised there about the... Um, there is some struggle in recovery as well. It is... Uh, um, that there's a lot happening through that phase and you can be demotivated through the recovery phase and, and uh, getting ready for the next chapter or, or, or the next challenge. Yeah, look, at, well, lots, I mean, lots of the businesses that we work with, what, what we hear in the discussions after the session, you know, in the, in the lunch break or at, at dinner or, you know, in the, in the corridors and in the, in the pubs is, Lots of people know intuitively that they cannot get anything done. They can't have these flow blocks with in interruptions. Um, so instead of putting in their calendars flow blocks, deep work, thinking time, creative time, strategic time, whatever it might be, they put in uh, a meeting to block out the calendar so that their colleagues and their boss think that they're doing client work delivering that you know it there, there seems to be a general feeling that deep work creative work is frowned upon like it's not or or that it's that it's not work so right so you know the very idea that you put rest you know that you actually put in your calendar 10 minute rest break yeah no one does that because it's frowned upon it's a, it's it's you can we'll give you we'll give you yoga classes but you got to do it at six in the morning because you got to be in for the client work <laughs> you, know? you got to be busy yeah uh, um so what is a what is a bad day look like for you what is a tough day for you what, what, what immediately came to mind was i i worked i worked too hard on monday of this week Mm -hmm. Um, I did, I did a couple of major two, two flow blocks in the morning. I did about three hours from a first one. I started at six in the morning. I then did some training and then I had another couple of hours before lunch. I was then in the office for all the struggle stuff all afternoon. I didn't take enough breaks. The day was way too long. And on Tuesday, I felt terrible and I couldn't do anything that, that I had scheduled in on Tuesday at any kind of level. I felt, I felt tired. I felt guilty. I felt useless. And of course, I've just spent five or 10 minutes talking to you about the, about the flow cycle. So, so I, I'm getting it wrong a lot of the time, but I'm, as a result, I know all this. I've got my calendar designed in such a way to avoid this. Um, I understand the neuroscience behind it and I'm still getting it wrong. So, so you, so I've got to work hard at doing that, and I've got to, I've got to work hard at acknowledging that if I had had a brilliant, productive day on Monday, doing five x probably five x output, it's okay to just dial it in on Tuesday, Tuesday morning. But it's hard, it's hard when it kind of, um, it when it creeps up on you and you you unexpectedly just are performing at a level that you're not happy with. Uh, so that was a tough 
day. And the other thing at a more at a broader level is if if I get if things start to become messy, if I if my projects are um, if I've got new things, too many new things going on, and I'm not, I'm not running things through that filter that I mentioned earlier on. When I've yeah. said yes to too many things, and they start to creep in on my flow blocks, or, or I just know that I'm not going to get them all done. When I've said yes to too many things, and I'm not sticking with my plan, I find that just overwhelming. When it's overwhelming. I can. I nearly can't get anything done. And and I guess the the a good day is the is a reverse of that. Or with all this flu stuff and you know, I I mean the three thing the three things I I really cannot like doing. I you know I really like the work that I do. Yeah. Um, I like eating, uh, and and I, <laughs> and I like having a few drinks <laughs> because you can go and meet people. You know. So these are the three things in life, particularly you know, with the with the blindness and paralysis. These are the three things which I'm constantly trying to do less of, work, yeah. less work, less food, and less drinks. Uh, so whenever I have things, you know, when when I have things in balance, if if I'm working really well with my calendar designed and I'm delivering it brilliantly, when I'm doing my keto diet and I'm fasting and I'm at the right weight. And when I'm not, when I haven't had any, uh, you know, no, no drinks and I'm feeling great, that's okay. But I'm not connecting with people. It's a, it's a sort of, yes. it's it, it's isolating and it's too disciplined. And I'm probably, uh, uh, I probably had an oxytocin debt. You know, you need to laugh sometimes. You need to relax sometimes as well. So I think whenever I get the true balance is whenever I'm having a bit of fun and I'm doing the the things that I've described. Yeah, as a competitor, as a sportsman, as a in the adventure stuff that you did, the competitive nature of it can, um, you know, come across as sort of selfish. Um, um, but the stuff that you you did with your blindness and um, uh, what you've done, the robotics and the millions of steps that you've taken, are inspiring to others. It sort of takes competition and moves it to something else that you know, elevates the spirit and elevates others. Um, do you think that giving back type work as we get a bit older takes a bigger, bigger part of our, of our life and um, it brings a lot more of a, the good days? The competitor, the idea of competition and competitor is, is uh, you know, there's a, I think there's a big discussion uh, in the world right now. Um, and I think the, Maybe it goes a little bit back to the finite and infinite games idea. For me, for me, being a competitor is about about simply being in the arena, pursuing success and risking failure. Um, and you, you can only do that if you're defining yourself by your willingness to try. But it's not uh, being a competitor is is not a win at all all costs type of. Uh, uh, I mean, it's about it's the competitor's mindset. It's about being in the arena. It's about it's actually about trying because yeah. if, if if you if you're prepared to have a go, and you're have you're prepared to have a go, in the knowledge that you're that you may fail, well then you have a chance of succeeding. But I in rowing, which uh, 
you and I both both did. I was never a, a single scholar. I was never a guy to go out on my own. I never really enjoyed that. I was always a crew a crew guy, and I always liked the club. And part of being involved in a club is that you are involved in something greater than yourself. So, in a way, for me. I, I kind of get annoyed sometimes whenever people are, oh, competition is bad, full stop. I don't think it is. And the scientists that that I work with and the technologists and some of the people in the charity world and, you know, the people who, have, who, are, who are investing and backing and financing some of these, uh, these breakthroughs, they are world-class competitors. They're very much people who are, who are all in the arena pursuing success and risking failure to some extent or the other. What I think the subtlety in the conversation is um, that you need you need competitors doing their thing and pushing boundaries a lot of the time. Let's call, I, I mean, competitors, explorers, I, I sort of see them as interchangeable. But if we can find a way where competitors can create some space to collaborate with each other, that's where we really make the big breakthroughs. Mark, on on that note, we've we've taken a lot of your time this morning. It's uh, it's always such a privilege to get to spend time with you. During COVID is when when you first joined our advisory board, and um, you've been a, a guiding hand in in, in my th- um, thoughts and and how we operate as a team and how we manage our culture. And I know you've delivered that to hundreds of organisations around the world and to and to people and businesses. So thank you for all of that and for today and and uh, for, for uh, uh, the honor of doing our, our first High Net Purpose podcast. Thanks for having me on. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share this show with someone who might like it. We've got a number more episodes in this series. So follow High Net Purpose wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss the next one.